Chapter 10 of Flowers and Ferns in Their Haunts by Mabel Osgood Wright. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Reading by Matt Ferrard. Chapter 10 Wayfarers. Many moods lead us to seek the flower in the landscape, as many as the months, and like them, grouping naturally into four seasons. First, the awakening the mood intimate that draws to close contact and minute inspection in contrast to the mood impersonal that sees from afar and is satisfied with wide expanse and general effect the insatiable ranging mood implies a dash of sporting blood in the veins while the passive mood of the mere spectator for whom the passing of the flower pageant is an unexacting amusement is by far the most usual of all as man in the making of highways and the threading of grassy lanes has invaded the haunts of the wild flowers these in turn true to their native soil surviving the slightly changed conditions have become wayfarers thronging the shaded banks open borders and runnels beside travelled roads according to the locality traversed there protected by fences from plough and brush hook they form a wayside calendar of the year a guide to the happenings in wood field and swamp that those who may not go afield on foot may ride and read a roll-call of the wayfarers that can be found by the wheel tracks that back the sand dunes bordering the raised road across the sea gardens hedge sunflower lane follow the turnpike through lone town and round about the den district to treebridge would be to repeat the list of the entire local flora from the vagrant tansy of waste places to the delicate maidenhair fern half concealed by wayside bushes save perhaps some of the rarer orchids and the plants of deep bogs through which as a matter of course if roads are built the necessary drainage changes the characteristics of growth many garden flowers also make their escape from cultivation first as wayfarers having been transported by seed or root in earth used for filling gullies or the space between road and fence from thence travelling across lots to complete freedom that after a generation or so places them in the ranks of naturalized plants to find the smaller flowers whether in wood or by the wayside the quest must be on foot but many an entrancing flower landscape has come in my range when sauntering with a comfortable horse along the byways and these pictures are the more sympathetic from the human interest that the bit of road lends to them for the vistas opened by it through the trees give a depth of focus wholly lacking in the uncleared wood or rolling meadow also a wide knowledge of the berry bearing shrubs and smaller trees of any locality may be had merely from following the trail of an average country road the season through in may the shadbush and various thorns together with the native apple dogwoods and viburnums combine to draw the eye from the low moist woods where the leafage begins to shut out the sun that at the first coming of spring awakened the marsh marigold and adder's tongue pussy willow the pet name of the glaucus willow salix discolor is the first catkin to give a hint of spring and the upper growth but its little fur pads seem better calculated to greet a march snowstorm than a melting april shower 
At this time, the faithful yellow wands of willow trees of river banks and along wet waysides are the olive branches that pledge a season of peace from winter storms before the snow has wholly retreated and left the earth free. Shadbush, then, is the first wayfaring shrub to wear a complete flower of really decorative quality, the delicate down upon the unfolding leaf with its suggestion of hoarfrost being as attractive as the blossom itself. The thorns, both as ornamental shrubs and small trees, may be seen among brush-edged roads at any time from the opening of the yellow-fruited dwarf thorn the first week of May until June when the flower clusters of the cockspur thorn, a species which often reaches tree height, call attention to its stout spikes that sometimes grow four inches in length, serving to identify it. Of some half-dozen native species of thorn that may be found in byways, the red-fruited is perhaps the most striking, both from its flowers and ornamental fruit, while the white hawthorn or English may is to be seen in the Lone Town region, guarding gateless gaps in old stone walls, together with the lilacs, telling the story of vanished homes. The foliage of the hawthorn is always crisp and clear-cut, and the flowers well set and symmetrical. Where a mass of the bushes, untrimmed and throwing out long sprays, forms a natural hedge, the effect of a solid barrier is lent to the landscape, an effect wholly different from that given by either dogwoods, viburnums, or elderflowers, and making one wish that the climate would allow the hawthorns universal use to make in America living fences such as border even the railways of the old world. The chokecherry is also frequently a wayfarer, and though, when untrimmed, it grows ten feet in height, its constant repression by the roadside stub, scythe, usually keeps it a dwarf bush. In blooming time, its foliage, which is of the plum-leaf type, alone separates it at a casual glance from the black wild cherry of cordial, yielding fruit and poisonous leaf, for the flowers are similar. But whosoever in early August mistakes the one for the other and eats the dark red translucent fruit will discover the mistake and learn also at the same time from what the plant derives its name by promptly choking as poor flower hat did because though i had warned her she could not believe that anything that looked so well could be so perfectly horrible quite as bad as the nitrate of silver that i had my throat swab with last winter her second experience with the deceptive fruit of the wild crab-apple, a beautiful but astringent member of a kindred family, was equally distressing. Two apples may be called wayfarers hereabout. The common apple has escaped so freely from orchards to grow, ungrafted, under the protection of old walls, that it has become quite a tree of the highways. Though the fruit is bitter, the flowers grow in great profusion, and are pinker than those on grafted trees. The more slender tree of the truly wild American crab-apple is a decided landscape flower of roadside tangles and light wood edges. The blossoms of this crab are deep pink, the buds being often tipped with carmine. The exquisite perfume has a distinctly wild quality, a fragrance that is shared by the small yellow apple itself. 
though the fabled Dead Sea fruit could not have been more disappointing than the taste of this wild crab. I have known even now, after winning to call my attention to a shower of the apples lying like yellow leaves inside a fence out of her reach, to drop the half-chewed fruit with an impatient puckering of the lips and a shake of the head that plainly said in horse talk, How could you place such a stone for bread trick upon your aged friend? <laughs> to May and June also belong the dogwoods by Burnham's and both the red and black-berried elders. In these months, to travel the road from the lilac house past Treebridge to Forge Mill Pond is to pass between open ranks of shrubs that rival in beauty anything that the garden can produce. Hereabout, the dogwoods belong to the latter half of May, when the showy white-flowered cornell by the roadside gives the signal for the rest of the family to unfurl. The alternate-leaved cornell with green bark has flat clusters of white flowers, followed by handsome berries, also white. Set upon coral red stems, it grows in clumps by this road, together with the silky cornell with its purplish twigs, rounder bunches of white flowers, and lead-blue berries that are of the whortleberry shape, and broader than long, while in early June the brilliant twigs of the red osier dogwood in wet spots and runnels bear white flower clusters and white berries. All the dogwoods have small flowers that, like the composites, are rendered conspicuous by massing, while the berries are of varied hues, and as they remain throughout the season are an important means of identification. The two common spireas, the pink steeplebush and the white meadow sweet, are also wayfarers. Steeplebush choosing wet places, while meadowsweet as often hedges tumble-down fences with its fragrant feathery plumes. The red-berried elder has very graceful clear-cut compound leaves, ending in sharp points. Its flower clusters are long, somewhat like small bunches of whitish lilacs, while those of the black-berried species are flat. This red-berried elder becomes a conspicuous wayfarer at the time that unfolding beech leaves hang in velvety limpness, and the hobble-bush or wayfaring tree of the smooth purplish bark is only beginning to reveal the white in the buds that will soon open into flat bunches of flowers, with florets resembling those of the garden snowball. Whenever the road divides shady banks, the maple-leaved cornell shows its clearly marked foliage that wears such lovely shades of pink in the late summer and autumn as to win for the plant a place in the landscape far beyond the deserts of either its inconspicuous white flowers or its black fruit. Of the common viburnums, the arrowwood with gray branches, white clustered flowers of the dogwood type, and blue fruit, shading to black, and the sweet viburnum are the most noticeable. Sweet viburnum, locally known as nannyberry, is an extremely handsome shrub, when left undisturbed, often growing into a tree of twenty-five or thirty feet in height, covered with shining, saw-edged leaves, and in late May topped with a profusion of flat bunches of fragrant, small white flowers. The growth is very thick and close, the twigs being somewhat spiny, so that blackthorn is among its local names. This habit of growth 
has been noticed by the thrifty Hungarians who are venturing into Lone Town, and I have seen a chicken pen fenced by the straight bushes, set a few inches apart and bound together by a couple of strands of copper wire, evidently dropped from the outfit of the long-distance telephone company in some of its wanderings across country. The sweet viburnum is easily transplanted, and succeeds finely if deep, rich soil is given it, being not only a shrub of great beauty, but an attraction to birds from its edible fruit. In traversing hillside roads, and looking over distant meadows whose edges catch the rich wash of cultivated fields, close hedges of sweet viburnum can be seen, making natural fences suggestive of English hawthorn. I don't see how folks can get out of taking notice of posies, even if they never goes off turnpikes or sets a foot out o' wagons, said time of year, one day, back in June, as he paused to chat while he was crossing the tree bridge road a little above the old cider mill. His buttonhole held that morning a bunch of wild rosebuds, the long green calyx points fringing the carmine pink that peeped between while as he spoke he pressed with his foot the loosened soil about the roots of a plant of yellow hop clover that had been partly washed from its position on the road bank. Take just common clovers, now, not growing in fields for a crop, but strayed out by themselves here along the road. There's lots to see in them, differences a leaf and blossoms, and it must be allowed few plants is so purty and neat and useful all to once what draws clover along the edges of the road so i reckon it's the wash of the road dung that blows around and settles and then the leaf ashes on top of that somebody's allus firing leaves along roads and clover's just bound to foller ashes did you ever notice now how this yaller clover has an upward pointing narrow leaf that's grassy to the field the white one's leaf is rounder and opens out more, though it feels stiff and crispy, too. But pink clover's got soft, downy leaves of several shapes, and the leaf pieces are mostly marked out with lighter green as fine as posies. Then there's the little dry-stocked kind that's no account for fodder and grows up in the sand wash atop of the hill that's got kind of fur-colored flowers soft as pussy-willers. Yes, there's a sight to be seen even in clovers. Time of year speaks truly. There is much beauty, both of detail and effect, to be found by the wayside, that for various reasons is passed over, the chief being because it is close at hand. To the usual traveler, clovers and grasses are merely species of fodder weeds from their location, but every plant that lends color to even the groundwork of the landscape should win admiration. The dwarf sand-growing clover, known as rabbit's foot, as time of year says, soft as pussy-willers, is a most unique little specimen. I had almost said creature, so like caterpillar wool, or soft fur is the color and texture of its flower-heads, and is largely overlooked, though it blossoms all summer in places where little else is found but the unlovely tick trefoils and sand knotweeds. Then take all kinds of thorny and bramble flowers that grows along turnpikes, continued time of year, and there's pictures for you painted out and framed. Just look at the big high bush blackberries yonder. The prickles all hid under a load of white bloom, 
and those low bush ones climbing up the bank, not to speak of thimbleberry canes growing up between those old millstones on the south side. As for roses and white elder blows, come three weeks more and no one with eyes can go on the forge crossroad and not be struck of a heap. There's prickly low bush roses by the wheel tracks and going up the bank, all dressed out in pink that's eanimost red. Then taller bushes back along the fence, their flowers are lighter, with longer stems and less thorns. The white flower and elder backs them up, and then goes off alone across lots where the young locusts grow, just hedging the ground in fit for gardens. If it's out of season for roses and such, there's always wild carrot. That's a plague straight through unless you take consolation in observing its flower bunches. It has as many spokes as an umbrella that move up and down much the same, the bunches being nice and sort of slope-topped when in full bloom, then flattening and curling up outward as it makes sea. For all the world like an umbrella that's turned inside out and wrecked. I tell yer, if yer want to find some nice posies and good sniffins, by the way, just go up to the Glen Road towards Georgetown some day long in July. There's rose-flowered raspberries up there, settin' between the rocks, and a strong-smelling purple flower that I can't name, only to say it's shaped like bee balm, a-growin' along the fences the same as if a garden of it had broke loose, and just beyond there's a lot of yaller wild santa flowers that look like tall patrick's peas growing in long bunches thus admonished and being in that neighborhood at the right time we turned nell into the glen road which before entering the woods ran for a space between waste fields fenced by tumble-down stone walls with occasional openings guarded by moss-grown chestnut or cedar bars so long disused that wild grapes and vines of climbing bittersweet or waxwork were using them as trellises. The wayside growth was luxuriant and typical of the season, but offered no novelties until the eye, following the fence line, was arrested by a flowery bank of unusual color, not blue nor purple exactly, but a pale combination of the two, a sort of rosy suffusion blending with it. A nearer view showed slender green stems, two feet or so in height, set with pairs of thin, rather slender pointed leaves, each stem crowned by a head of flowers, in shape resembling the red bee balm, as Tommy Year had said, but of a color difficult to name, as it appeared under the varied play of light and shade before the pasture bars where the plants had established themselves, with the evident intention of sometime appropriating the entire field within, as the outpost could now be seen here and there between the white-flowered moth mullions. This flower, in the hand, proved to be wild bergamot of pungent odor, one of the mint tribe, but, in the landscape, set amid varied greens, and separated by the background of gray lichen-covered bars from wild fields dyed with the dull red of sheep sorrel, it made another of the many pictures whose color can be retained only by the memory. A few rods farther on, the wayside growths changed again, showing the effects of sandy soil and a location that had once been wooded, and where now fragrant foliage made up for the lack of flowers. On each side of the narrowed way, sweet fern and bayberry bushes touched the wheels, 
yielding their wholesome perfume freely. Both of these woody shrubs belong in the same family, but while the sweet fern with its scalloped leaves grows only to the height of two or three feet, the bayberry may attain a height of six or eight, its clean, smooth-edged leaves looking as if they ought to be evergreen, even though they are not, wherefore they are of much color value as background among lighter and more perishable summer foliage. The chief fame of bayberry, aside from the excellent keeping quality of its fragrant branches when used to fill the great jars in summer fireplaces, comes from its adhesive gray berries. From these, a waxy substance is obtained that in colonial times was much prized for candle making and such uses. The plants being one of the few shrubs of sand dunes growing profusely along the eastern seacoast where it is still called candleberry. Presently, the roadside became shady on the left, while on the right a rocky ledge dropped abruptly to the river. The wooded bank, sloping upward to a crest of hemlocks and cotton poplars, was green with ground pine, laurels, and Christmas ferns, while at the other side was an irregular line of low shrubs with downy leaves, suggesting both those of the sugar maple and wild grape among which were panicles of purple-pink flowers, having the fringed stamens, shape, and quality of small wild roses that named them as purple-flowering raspberries, whose use is beauty, as the coarse fruit, though edible, is dry and tasteless. Removed from its surroundings, or seen where the too bright sunlight fades the peculiar color of its petals, this shrub might be passed by as unattractive, but here, between road and river, growing variously in straight ranks that merged into thick clumps or springing from between rocks and hanging over in almost vine-like profusion between wild grape festoons to be reflected in the water, the color harmonized perfectly and gave the finishing touch to one of the loveliest byway pictures I have ever seen. Going into the glen only far enough to let Nell drink from the old pothole stone, to which a spring is led by an open wooden pipe. We turned about, Nell lazily retracing her steps, and I absorbing, as best I might, this picture of the shaded road, reversed by the turning and quite different from the first view. The bank that was a flowering rockery was now on the left, and the river mirrored scraps of beauty and drew down the sky until it met and blended with them, while at the entrance of the glen the bright sun rested on masses of deep pink knotweed that carried the raspberry color in a paler tone into the distance, completing the color harmony of the picture. Such vistas are to be looked at and remembered, but they cannot be counterfeited by the hand of man. The magician only can combine the detail and broad effect that makes them what they are. In September, the purple stalks and odd green leaves of the white wild lettuce will have replaced the flowering raspberry in the glen, and along the rocky side of the highway, when the sumacs will become prominent as wayfarers. These are more or less conspicuous all the year, four types being locally plentiful, the poison sumac of moist grounds with the white drooping berries, and the staghorn, smooth upland, and scarlet sumacs of light wood edges and dry hillsides. 
These three last are also attractive in early summer, from the brightness of their foliage and the feathery yellow-green of the flower spikes. But when the berry cones redden, they seem to step out from the tangled wild hedges and briar-carpeted waste pastures to suddenly become the most notable of wayfarers. The upland sumac has smooth leaves that in autumn appear varnished and show little wings along the midrib that unite the leaflets to the central stem. The foliage of this sumac, besides taking deep, rich, crimson autumn tints, has a firm, leathery quality that makes it valuable for decorative uses, either when freshly gathered or when pressed and masked with the berries of the staghorn variety and branches of bittersweet. The scarlet is the usual hillside type. The leaves, dark green above, are whitish underneath, and its flower clusters are often ragged from a mingling of distorted leaves, while the staghorn sumac is the tallest type of all, growing to a tree of forty feet, with long leaves of sometimes thirty-one leaflets. The berries of the staghorn are covered with soft crimson hairs, and the stems and twigs are velvety, suggesting, with its way of branching, a resemblance to immature antlers. These four sumacs may be seen in autumn following the inland highways, the types varying according to whether the soil is wet or dry, and these sumacs, together with the trailing blackberry vines, the five-fingered Virginia creeper of stone walls, the three-leaved bushy vines of poison ivy that crown the fence posts, give the keynote of autumn color that starts like a fire among wayside leaves and burns upward and inward until the summer beauty wastes away and is consumed, and even the tallest oak of the forest is aflame. End of chapter 10